it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, December 8th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson in New York City. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And then if you miss a moment of our show, there's a podcast. It's free. It's on demand. After the show's over, seven days a week, including, I should say, bonus Benson on the weekends. So GuyBensonShow.com is the one-stop shop for all of the show content right there. You can also follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow on Twitter, at GuyBensonShow on Instagram. And then... We also want to remind you on the podcast side, there are a few other options as well, foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Here's our lineup today on the radio. Morgan Ortegas, former State Department spokeswoman, she will be here later this hour reacting to the Brittany Griner prisoner swap deal struck by the Biden administration. I have very mixed feelings. No mixed feelings about her coming home. That is unambiguously great. Everything else about the deal, not great. Let's put it that way. That's putting it lightly. Morgan will be here with her reaction, former spokesperson under Secretary Mike Pompeo. In our next hour, Congressman Chip Roy, Republican of Texas, he is going to be here talking about immigration and more. Our friend Jason Rance out in Seattle will also be here in our middle hour on the Griner story and some of the madness happening up in his region, the Pacific Northwest, a never-ending stream of insanity out there. And then Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday. She, of course, does that job, but she is our top Supreme Court expert and watcher here at Fox News. And it was a busy week at SCOTUS, a couple big cases being heard on oral arguments some arguments and, and points being made by justices on both sides on those cases. We will get her reaction and analysis to what happened. Quick programming note on the TV side of the world. I've actually had a pretty busy day. I was on Varney earlier on FBN. I was on America Reports with Sandra Smith earlier this afternoon. Back on TV tonight in the 7 p.m. hour, I'm on Kennedy's panel. That's the 7 p.m. hour, FBN Hope to see you there. You can also set your DVR. I saw that she just had a really good record-setting ratings month, either last month or the month before. I think I had guest-hosted one of those shows, so it's always fun to be a small part of her success, my good friend Kennedy, tonight on TV. So there's a whole bunch that I want to get to here. And I probably shouldn't start with this because I'm just taking their bait and fixating on this lie that they keep telling, but I can't help it. If you can't tell, as a regular listener, this genuinely bothers me, and it's not something that I'm just going to sort of, like, let go. And that is the so-called voter suppression nonsense that they continue to peddle in the state of Georgia. 
I did a whole lengthy analysis and monologue yesterday in our middle hour on the Georgia runoff results. We got into a lot of the specifics. In fact, I talked more about them this morning on TV with Stewart. I'll be writing about it tomorrow at townhall.com. We aren't shying away from the Georgia election results, the good ones, and there were many good ones for the Republicans this year, than the bad one, really, which was the Senate race, an important Senate race lost by the Republicans, I would say a blown race in a number of ways. And we talked about that yesterday. One of the things that we also address on the show repeatedly, and I've done so in my writing and on Twitter, et cetera, is an aggressive response and rebuttal to the Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden lie that the common sense voting reforms in Georgia were voter suppression and racist. They said it was Jim Crow 2.0. Biden said worse than Jim Crow. We've talked about this ad nauseum. If you listen regularly, you can probably recite some of these points because I've made them that often. But what we did was at every step of this election cycle, which was the first election under this new regime of voting after the reforms were implemented, and you had all the predictions and all the hair on fire, parade of horribles, histrionics and lies from the left that a bunch of corporations bought into, still waiting on those apologies, Delta, Coke, MLB. The Democrats just said this stuff to scare people, to anger people, to whip up resentment, to whip up racial fears. And yet at every single turn in the 2022 election cycle, every single stage, new records were broken on turnout. In the primaries, in the general, and in the runoff. And by the way, the runoff, the Democrats won. And yet, in his victory speech the other night on Tuesday, Raphael Warnock, who's just awful, let's be clear, like he is way to the left of Georgia. He's a slick campaigner. His ads are really good. He had a deeply, deeply flawed opponent and used all that to his advantage. But he is a terrible political figure in the sense of his voting record, and also a deeply flawed individual, personally. Maybe voters decided slightly less flawed than his opponent, so I guess, you know, congrats. But Raphael Warnock, even in victory, couldn't be truthful, Mr. Pastor, couldn't be gracious, and still, having won, talked about voter suppression in Cut 24. There are those who would look at the outcome of this race and say that there's no voter suppression in Georgia. Let me be clear. Just because people endured long lines that wrapped around buildings, some blocks long, just because they endured the rain and the cold and all kinds of tricks in order to vote doesn't mean that voter suppression does not exist. It simply means that you, the people, have decided that your voices will not be silenced. Big cheers from the crowd. They believe this stuff. It's an absolute lie. There was no suppression. 
Voter suppression was a myth. He talks about long lines. Across the state, lines were very short. There was tons of early voting. They set records on early voting. Much more early voting available in Georgia than in a whole number of blue states, including blue states that have now expanded their early vote. Still not as much as Georgia has. Some of the only examples that I saw cited on this was these long lines in certain places in Democratic counties at certain points of the cycle when people were out there voting. Oh, look at these lines. It's long. It's taking a while to get in. People were screaming at Gabriel Sterling, the spokesman for the secretary of state, who, by the way, won re-election by nine points, Raffensperger, Republican. Gabriel Sterling, who took a lot of incoming fire from the Trump folks two years ago, now the lefties are back to hating him. They're saying, look at this voter suppression. Look at what's happening. And he pointed out very calmly and repeatedly, in the relatively rare circumstances that there were long lines in Georgia for voting, it was in counties where the counties control the number of locations they have open in the runoff. It is not the state law that was dictating this example that they're calling suppression. It was the blue counties having fewer polling locations, largely because they didn't have the manpower to man more locations. This was done at the county level by Democratic officials. This was not the Republican passed law. This was Democratic officials in counties. That's the only example that they can cite about suppression, and it's not suppression. And if you want to call it suppression, you can blame the county-level Democrats for it because it was their choice, their decisions on how many locations to have open. And even then, the lines were not that bad. So it is just untrue, and here you have a man of the cloth and a U.S. senator convincing people or trying to, and the hardcore base down there believes it, that this is suppression that happened, and just because they won and set turnout records doesn't mean that the suppression didn't happen. It just drives me crazy that they are unwilling to just, even if they're not going to admit that they were wrong about it, just letting it go, just quietly, maybe with some degree of shame, dropping the point and moving on, they can't do it. They are so committed to this aggressive lie that they're going to say it no matter what. And the thing is, the neat little trick of this mindset is it's unfalsifiable. If they lose, well, suppression. If they win, it's despite the suppression. And what they know is, to a certain extent of their base, it's the fear, the false fear of suppression that they use to motivate people. They lie to them to scare them to get them to come out and vote. And I know that's something that they always say Republicans do. A party of fear, lying to their base. The Democrats do it too. And here's another example. Dude just won in record turnout. Won the election with record turnout for this kind of a runoff. And he has to devote a portion of the victory speech To the lie. Because it's just like catechism, it's dogma, it's it's left-wing religion to believe this. And I guess it doesn't, I'm wasting my breath to the hardcore people. I'm wasting it. They will never believe 
that the truth is the truth. But it just bothers me, and it bothers me more that the White House is also doing this. Corinne Jean-Pierre, spokesperson for the president, who lied and demagogued worse than anyone in the country on this. Moderate Joe Biden was heinously deceitful and demagogic and racial about this issue. And there was a question about whether he wants to back off the false talking points at all. And the answer, of course, from the White House podium is no, the lie remains. Cut 23. The president, though, called it um, Jim Crow in the 21st century and a blatant attack on the Constitution. So does he still see it that way? I'll say this. I'm not going to speak to the Department of Justice uh, legal uh, actions. That's something for them to uh, to speak to. Uh, what I can say and uh, not not going to get into specifics of your question, but you guys, you all have reported this, that there was. Uh, suppression uh, that uh, that that we saw that uh, throughout uh, through that throughout the the Georgia election. So that is something that was been reported on. So I leave it to those reports. Uh, but look, even with that, the American people came out. They came out in historic fashion fashion uh, uh, to make their voices loud and clear. She can't talk. She's just so bad at this. It's like even despite that, they came out in record numbers, in record fashion. Yeah, that's your first tip that there wasn't voter suppression, Kareen. The word that you just used, record. And then notice she says she's not going to speak for the DOJ because they were doing a whole big fake like investigation, like for political reasons. We're going to investigate Georgia. Total politics based on a lie for political reasons, politicizing DOJ as is common under this administration, point one. And point two, she says, I'm not going to get into specifics. Of course she's not, because the specifics don't exist. It's a lie. If she were pressed on the specifics, and I think she doesn't know, frankly, but if she were asked to justify the specifics, she couldn't. It's like when you say, oh, there's, there's voter fraud. Well, give us the specific examples. You can maybe find one or two little examples of voter fraud. It does exist. There's more evidence for voter fraud than voter suppression in Georgia. Let's put it that way. But they say, well, that's not systemic. It doesn't change outcomes. Like one or two bad apples isn't the rule. They take the exact opposite position on suppression where they can have no real evidence and say it anyway. She says it was out there reported. I'll just refer to the reports. What reports are you talking about? Long lines? How is that suppression? What if it's Democratic county officials having fewer places open? Does that count as suppression? Well, we're not going to talk about specifics. Well, I will. Even if it's a waste of my time. They passed a good law in Georgia. They had a record-setting, excellently facilitated election. Both parties won and lost certain races that they wanted. It was a model of an American election, and they still dump on it on the left because it wasn't exactly what they wanted and because they want to keep people afraid in the future. Absolutely disgusting. And it's not just some randos on Twitter saying this stuff. It is the newly reelected senator and the spokesperson for the president of the United States. Compared to that, I'm just a guy with a microphone and some facts. But I'm going to use it to tell you those facts as long as they keep lying, which apparently they're committed to for quite some time on this. Just getting started. Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Moments ago, standing together with her wife, Sherelle, uh, in the Oval Office, I spoke with Brittany Griner. She's safe. She's on a plane. She's on her way home. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. I'm Guy Benson. That was President Biden earlier announcing that Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, is coming home after she has been released as part of a prisoner swap with the Russian government, Vladimir Putin's regime. She had been unjustly detained there for quite a long time on these trumped up marijuana charges. And the Russians were using her as a bargaining chip. And unfortunately, they got one hell of a bargain out of it. The Russians did. We'll get into some of those details with Morgan Ortegas coming up next. I want to state, and I'll probably restate this several times, I am so happy for her. I'm so happy for her wife. I'm so happy for her family and friends and loved ones. I cannot imagine what she's gone through over there and what they've gone through Over the course of this ordeal, every single day, it's awful. And to have that finally coming to an end where she's safe and sound and coming home is great. Like, from their perspective, this is wonderful news. And from that narrow perspective, it's great news for all Americans. We should all celebrate and welcome her home. My concern, and this is not like a contradiction, We're adults. We can have conflicting thoughts in our heads. We're allowed to do that. My concern is when we give up a guy imprisoned here, nicknamed the merchant of death, a terrorist, drugged or arms dealing warlord, basically, with gallons of blood on his hands, trying to sell weapons to terrorist organizations specifically to kill Americans and blow planes out of the sky and that sort of thing. That's who they got. We got a basketball player who allegedly had marijuana. They get a terrorist arms dealer. The incentives in this exchange are concerning, to say the least. More on that coming up. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show in New York City. Through the rest of the week. 
Thank you very much for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. The podcast is free every day. And joining us now is Morgan Ortegas, former U.S. State Department spokesperson and founder of Polaris National Security. Morgan, great to have you back. Thank you. Good to be on. I, I will have to warn you, my friend, that I am in one of the seven layers of hell known as LAX. So if it's loud, <laughs> I apologize to you and all the listeners. Well, you sound great, and good luck navigating LAX out there. I want to talk to you about the Brittany Griner release. And before we get your thoughts, I want to play a soundbite from the current Secretary of State. You, of course, were the spokeswoman for the previous Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. This is Anthony Blinken, Biden's guy, and he was talking about this prisoner exchange, essentially saying we were given no choice by the Kremlin. Cut 33. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. The choice was one or none. I wholeheartedly wish that we could have brought Paul home today on the same plane as Brittany, just as at the time I wish we could have brought Brittany and Paul home when we secured the release of Trevor Reed back in April. But we will stay at it. We continue to work with the Whelan family, who have been extraordinarily gracious, and we hold them in our thoughts and prayers always, but especially today. And we will never relent until Paul... And for that matter, every other U.S. national held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad is free and coming home and joining their families where they belong. Okay, Morgan. So he said the Russians gave us no choice. It was either Brittany or no one. I just want to get your big picture thoughts on this before we delve into some of the details, because I saw you put out a very thoughtful Twitter thread about it. How do you react to the news today? Well, first of all, you just hit the nail on the head. It was the Russians who put up the choice of one or none. And why are we letting the Russians dictate the terms? Uh, that's, um, you, you know, that, that, that in and of space, I've been on a flight to L.A., and so I, I actually missed the press conference. I was just hearing it live with your listeners for the first time. And you would, if you were here, you would see me shaking my head on the, on the bus to the rental cars. Um, because the premise is just flawed to begin with to say it was one or none. Well, that's because you let you let the Russians uh, control the terms, right. the terms. Uh, listen, in the Trump administration, uh, when Robert Orion, before he became national security advisor, his job at the State Department was to negotiate the release of our hostages around the world. President Trump got more hostages out than any president in modern history, maybe ever. I'll have to double-check that. I texted Robert O'Brien right before I came on the show with you. I will double-check that statistic for your listeners, Guy. Um, but, uh, but definitely in modern history, maybe ever. So how did Robert, and if you talk to Robert O'Brien about this, how did Robert get those hostages out from around the world? Well, he negotiated from a position of strength. You don't negotiate where you let uh, the enemy or let the opposition party uh, dictate the terms of who will be released. And I think that that problem, to me, what, what Secretary Blinken just said right there, is indicative, Guy, of how they approach every negotiation. And it is no surprise to me that the JCPOA, uh, their desire to return and get back in, it has failed, uh, because if that's how they approach negotiations with the Russians, and that's how they're approaching with the Iranians and whomever else comes to the table. I mean, that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you. The approach that Robert O'Brien and the Trump administration had was extremely successful without necessarily just succumbing to the demands of the hostile power that's clearly in the wrong. Like, this is not a fair trade in any way, shape, or form. The Russians are bad. 
The regime is evil. They take people effectively hostage and imprison them as bargaining chips. And as I said in the last segment, they got themselves a whale of a bargain. Horrible for America and for the Whelan family and others, uh, but great for the Russians. Because let's just focus for the moment, Morgan, on who the Americans, who the Biden administration have released in this swap. They got a basketball, a female basketball player who allegedly had weed in her possession. That's who they had and gave up in exchange for, I told the audience, someone whose nickname is the Merchant of Death. Tell us more about this guy. Well, I I just want to say that I'm I'm always happy when we get an American home. I really am. Of course. There were people that we negotiated to to get out the hostages, but people who did not have the most pristine records, right, by, by any means. Um, and, and so the issue with me is not being very happy for her and her family that we were able to get her home. That's Correct. great. But the issue is, again, is, is letting the Russians set the term of the release and not being able to get Paul Whelan out. And by the way, uh, when we talk about Paul Whelan, of course, the Marine who was there, who was not let out, who's been held captive for, for longer, uh, who has not uh, pled guilty to any charges, we have now just upped the ante. By allowing this to happen, we have showed our cards the Russians guy. And we've showed the Russians that Paul is the most valuable hostage or, or, you know, wrongfully detained person that the Russians have. And so by showing them that, it's going to make it even harder to ever get them out because uh, they set a price, they set a bounty, and it it was in exchange for Victor Bout, right? And and even Victor Bout wasn't enough. His release was not enough to get um, Paul Whelan out. And by the way, I must say, it's another important point. Not only... Did, we, did Robert O'Brien and Brian Hook and the team get more hostages out than any other president in modern history? We did it without doing these trades and without doing these swaps. We didn't pay anybody. Um, we simply stood up strong for the United States of America. So, um, so we know. Listen, Victor Bout is is a is a bad guy. He was convicted for um, conspiring to kill American citizens, officers, employees. Um, he is a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's most similar, this trade, and we can get into this, is most similar to what Joe Biden and President Barack Obama did um, during, uh, I think it was the second term of Obama, uh, Obama the Bergdahl case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this, this guy is like, this guy is a total arms-dealing uh, thug. I mean, there's, there's nothing good about this guy. And um, Brittany, I think, did plead, plead guilty to having pot or weed on her. Uh, clearly much less offensive of a crime than trying to kill Americans and being an inter- international arms trafficker. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's like a totally non-balanced. It's not a spy for a spy or something like that. You sometimes see the prisoner swaps. And by the way, we just saw some video flash across the screen that appears to be coming from Russian state TV showing the completion of that prisoner swap on a tarmac, it looks like. So it's now happened. And... I just want to underscore that point a little bit further. You could say maybe if there was some American over there who had committed murder and we still wanted to get them home and we were going to trade a murderer for an international arms dealer with blood on his hands who conspired to help terrorists kill Americans, you could say, oh, like these neither one of these people is great, but, you know, now they're both home. This is an athlete allegedly with some low-level drugs on her versus one of the most notorious arms dealers, arms traffickers on the planet, that's what Russia was able to achieve here, which, again, we're happy for Brittany and her family, 
and her wife and her parents and all of that. We're happy for them. We're happy that she's coming home. I'm thrilled for her. Um, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure, been a terrible ordeal. But you look at the victims of the families and, and others who have been affected by this arms dealer. Now he's back on the loose. The Russians have sort of been able to puff out their chest in the middle of this horrible war that they're waging on Ukraine and have a negotiation with the U.S., get the better of the negotiation clearly in terms of that that balance. I just think that so much of it looks awful. And maybe the most important point, Morgan, that I want to get your reaction to is this. I am concerned about incentives. If the Biden administration shows the Russians and therefore the rest of the world, hey, if you grab Americans, we are going to be willing to negotiate basically anyone's release in exchange for getting our people back. Aren't you kind of putting a mark on the head or a bounty on the head of Americans traveling in some of these parts of the world where if Putin looks and says, hey, if we snatch up some people and we hold them for long enough and we use them as some sort of chip, eventually we will get our way on something substantive. It's like while it's a win for Brittany Griner and her family right now, it's an incentive structure where that will be almost certainly exploited in the future. And you will have other Brittany Griners, other families going through this horrible situation because we've sent these signals to these bad actors. That's part of my worry that that the warm, fuzzy, genuinely happy feelings that we're that we're experiencing for her and her family will at some point be overwhelmed by the sadness and the fear and the anxiety next time this happens and the next time and the next time, which I feel like they're guaranteeing with a move like this. They are. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's hard to add on to what you just said because, uh, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head. That's exactly uh, what will happen. Uh, I mean, listen, if I were – I wrote an op-ed for CNN maybe about a year ago, actually – uh, on, you know, encouraging American business people to think twice about traveling before they travel to China. Um, and the, I would say the same now for, uh, you know, for Russia. Um, uh, it, it, uh, you know, I, I can't think of a scenario in which I would encourage any of my family or friends um, to do so. Um, I don't think it's safe. In addition to what you just said, that you could be used, uh, you know, for, you know, in a swap um, in addition to that, you know, it's a huge propaganda win for the regime right now when they're pretty weak at home, right, because of the Ukraine war and because their military has failed so spectacularly uh, so far and something, you know, that they were supposed to win within a matter of days that they, that they clearly did not. Um, so, you know, so you're giving a, a propaganda win to the regime. You're making it more dangerous. There was something, so about 12 years ago when I was an intel analyst at the U.S. Treasury Department, uh, one of the things that we followed closely was kidnapping for ransom. And that was something that terrorist groups were doing, but especially in Africa and the Sahel. And uh, the United States uh, refused to pay. All right. We would not pay terrorist groups um, and we would not participate in kidnapping for ransom. There's other countries, especially European countries, that would. And, you know, as an intel analyst, I would follow this. And it was pretty obvious that, you know, if your country paid to have a citizen's release, that, you know, uh, at the time it was a. Uh, uh, Al Qaeda, uh, AQIM, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and others um, that would uh, that would scoop you up if you were a citizen because they knew that your country, you know, would pay. Mm-hmm. And so that principle, I think, applies whether it is you know Al Qaeda 
um, in Africa or whether, you know, it's, it's terror, uh, Russia, which I think now at this point is basically a terrorist state. Certainly the Senate voted unanimously that it should be designated as so. Um, and so the principle applies, right, uh, into, into any negotiation. So yep. I think it is uh, it, it, it's, it's frustrating um, to see a weak and anemic uh, State Department operating at this level. And it's frustrating for me as someone who was a part of all of this firsthand and saw what it was like when you had Mike Pompeo, Robert O'Brien, Brian Hook, who was our Iran envoy, who also was able to help uh, negotiate to actually get two Americans out of Iran. Um, I saw those three gentlemen uh, negotiating to get Americans home from a position of strength and to see a weak and anemic State Department uh, trying to get a propaganda win today here in the United States when actually they're just making all Americans who travel uh, overseas, they're just putting them more in danger. Yep. It's very frustrating. Well, but and I that's the thing, that like— If you're listening today, do not travel to Russia and China. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And we talk about this often in the context of the border crisis— but people respond to incentives. Good people, neutral people, bad people, we as humans respond to incentives. And that's true of these outlaw regimes, these authoritarian governments, and these terrorist groups. And I bet you, if you did a poll on the American people, are you glad, are you supportive that the Biden administration got Brittany Griner out of Russia? You would get a very strong yes answer. If you poll the American people, are you glad that the Biden administration negotiated and got Brittany Griner out of Russia in exchange for an arms dealer, a dangerous arms dealer, if it means that more Americans will be taken hostage and prisoner because of this? I think the number then plummets because incentives matter in a vacuum for her and her family. This is great. And just on a human level, I feel joy and relief for them. How could you not? But you know what? As you and I, guy, were talking, I did get a text back from Robert O'Brien. Hey, who's fifty-five. That's the number. Fifty-five. Wow. Amazing. That's fifty-five uh, American hostages released during the Trump administration. A huge accomplishment for the team, especially Robert O'Brien, who I'd love to get back here on the show. We we know him well. Uh, last question: Since you brought up Iran, I do want to play you this soundbite. I actually played it on the show yesterday. It's or, or the day before, sometime this week. Rarely do I play a clip of Hillary Clinton in a positive light on this show, but she was on CNN earlier in the week and she said this in Cut 32. I would not be negotiating with Iran on anything right now, including the nuclear agreement. And I don't think we should look like we're seeking an agreement at a time when the people of Iran are standing up uh, to their oppressors and Mm -hmm. we are giving them hope and heart. Morgan, I guess when she's right, she's right. And I wish more people in the Democratic foreign policy establishment were listening to her on that point right now. Uh, I am a little shocked. I did not hear that clip. I'm learning a lot on your show today, uh, <laughs> Guy. I, I did not hear that clip, and, and um, I, I am in the same place. Kudos to her. She's right. And uh, I don't know why the Biden team isn't listening to her. I, I mean, listen, they obviously, the JCPOA and climate change, but the JCPOA and the second term of the Obama administration was religion to them. And they were willing to destroy people, destroy careers if they got in the way of the JCPOA. Um, and, and so they have sort of pretended like the last four years didn't happen in yep. the Middle East. And, and, and listen, it's, you, you come into a presidency and you say, I want to do X, Y, Z. And then the world, you know, events happen, worlds happen. You don't actually 
sometimes you get to do what you want. Sometimes you don't. But you have to accept the reality on the ground and accept, you know what, the blue team is not going to negotiate with us. Well, and that's the thing. The the world has changed since the Obama administration. The region has cha- changed dramatically. And some people just don't, don't want to acknowledge that. But at least Hillary Clinton sees that reality for what it is. And with that, up on a break, we've got to go. Morgan Ortegas, good luck at LAX. Always love chatting with you. Let's talk again soon. Thank you, my friend. We will be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show, one more note on the story we were just discussing. A senior defense official now telling the media that Victor Bout, this arms dealer that we have now traded for the basketball player, senior defense officials are concerned he will resume his arms dealing in Africa. One official saying, I think there's a concern that he would return to doing the same kind of work he's done in the past. Well, yeah. Arms dealer is going to deal arms. It's how he's made his money. Through blood. It reminds me of when the Obama administration traded, what was it, five high-ranking jihadists at Guantanamo Bay for Bo Bergdahl, the deserter, the guy who deserted the U.S. military. We traded five hardcore terrorists for him, and some of them, surprise, went back to the jihad. Incentives matter. By the way, one other note, just a political note. It broke yesterday. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has now been cited in a a House Ethics Committee complaint. AOC is now apparently reportedly under investigation by the House Ethics Committee. She is insisting that this will amount to much ado about nothing. She expects that this won't become a problem for her, but you never know. She's now under investigation. I think the only explanation that's possible is that the ethics committee clearly wants to date her. Right? That's her explanation for all of her critics. Back off. She's taken. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a new hour is here on the guy benson show broadcasting from new york city i'm guy benson thank you for listening watch me tonight on kennedy's show 7 p.m eastern time fox business network i'm on the panel i think cat Timp is on the panel getting a lot of cat Timp this week She'll be on the show tomorrow, actually, here. So it's a cat-heavy week. That's great. On with Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, FBN. Hope to see you there. Should be fun. Our website here at the radio show is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day, on demand. We recommend it. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. Fox News alert. The Dow closing up 183 points today. Ending the day just south of where I sit at 33,781. With us now, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas's 21st Congressional District. And Congressman, Merry Christmas to you. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Guy. Great to be on. Very Merry Christmas to you, and uh, hope you're doing well. Absolutely. Likewise. And I want to talk about immigration as a focus here in just a moment. Before we do that, just wanted to acknowledge that we have a disagreement 
on the Respect for Marriage Act. You voted no for it, uh, against it today. I've been a supporter of it. I see a few of your colleagues went from no last time to yes this time. A few others went from yes last time to no this time. It did pass with bipartisan support. I know that we don't agree on that point. I just wanted to raise that, number one, because it's breaking news today. Number two, you've been outspoken on it, and I have two in the other direction. Number three, we can have good exchanges on a bunch of different issues, even if we don't always agree. Well, first of all, thanks for doing that. I was actually going to do the same, um, and uh, I was probably going to start with a joke. I was saying, wait, you don't want to start with that issue instead of going into border security? But look, here's the deal, um, and I think you've heard me talk about it without getting into the substance of the underlying issue. Um, my, and I've got concerns with both, as you know, I've been public about it, but, but the religious liberty angle, I do think is worth all of us continuing to focus on. And I'll hope that all of us, no matter what our views are about marriage, same-sex marriage and, and so forth, is that we would be very focused on ensuring religious liberty in all of this. And so that's, that's what the main, my folks in offering amendments and rules committee and stuff this week, but a hundred percent of always happy to agree to disagree and 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 just appreciate your professionalism and and uh and our ability to do that to do that yeah yeah and i i do appreciate that and i've been very clear about my position on religious liberty as well we'll be talking actually next hour with shannon bream about the supreme court case that was up this week where i hope that the court can pretty decisively win or or i should say hand a win to this particular a woman who has been basically persecuted because she doesn't want to create websites for certain reasons. And I think that we have to have some sort of society where my marriage can be protected. And I think Obergefell's not going anywhere. So a lot of this is sort of moot or or academic around this legislation. It's sort of a backstop, as I've been calling it. But in the unlikely, very unlikely event, in my view, that the Supreme Court were to even take up a challenge to Obergefell, let alone overturn it, I'm happy that there are now, stability-minded protections that will be in place in legislation, I'm glad for that. I'm also hopeful that we can have the Supreme Court come in and just rule what the Constitution shows, which is people have the right to free exercise, people have conscience rights, and I think in a society that's pluralistic, especially when a lot of the mantra is live and let live, it has to go in both directions and we can actually create some sort of a truce culturally on this if we balance LGBT rights and religious liberties, and that's where I hope we land. Well, and I know you want to talk about border security, and so do I, too, but this is important. And, I, and look, I appreciate your—this is great. I mean, this is the kind of you know honest debate and dialogue we should have. You know, And my issue, just for one level deeper on the religious liberty angle on this bill, is that by creating the private right of action— you are now creating the sword by which people are going to then have to defend themselves under RIFRA in the Constitution. And they might be able to do that, but they're going to have to lawyer up to do it And when they have disagreements. And in particular, the only real savings in there was basically a restatement that the Constitution exists, RIFRA exists. And oh, by the way, oh, if you're solemnizing a same-sex marriage, then oh, you're protected from that. But okay, but what if you're a you know private religious school and you choose, well, I'm, I'm not sure I want to hire somebody who's a same-sex relationship. Well, do they have the right to, to do that? And well, and, but that was that was doing? already decided by the Supreme Court in a couple of years ago, nine to nothing. The example that you just gave was a nine nothing decision. Uh, Hosea Tabor, a case like that, it was unanimous. So, uh, look, I agree with you that this bill was not as capacious on religious liberty protections as 
some of us would have liked, myself included. Like, I would have been thrilled to add Mike Lee's amendment to the Senate bill and, and get the thing passed. On balance, I'm happy that it passed in its current form. I feel like some of these lawsuits that have been happening even before Obergefell, these issues were going to play out. I hope the Supreme Court helps settle the overall question. I didn't think this legislation was going to permanently settle it. Uh, And I felt like even in the absence of this legislation, some of the attempted persecution by states like Colorado and elsewhere was going to happen. And at some point, the court had to put an end to it. I'm hopeful that they will do that with this case. We will see. And, Congressman, with that, I do, as we only have a few minutes left, I do want to get to the border and to immigration. And I want to start with this, and I want to state outright, and we're hoping to get him on the show next week. I really have a lot of time for Senator Tom Tillis from North Carolina. He's a smart guy. I think he's constructive. He's compromise-minded in a Senate that's closely divided like that. I think you have to be, especially when he comes from a very tightly contested state like North Carolina, always, you know, a couple points here or there in these margins. I like him. I think he's usually on the right side of issues. I don't know if you've seen much about these reports around his potential deal with Kirsten Cinema from Arizona. On the surface, on its face, Congressman, I'm the type of kind of squishy moderate who might be open to some of that stuff. But I think you know, because you've been on the show enough, at this point over the last two years where we are in this border crisis, I have absolutely no appetite for any sort of bargain with the Democrats where you're trading supposed enforcement for some form of amnesty, even if it's a form of amnesty that I might be theoretically, hypothetically in favor of down the line. What we're seeing at the border in your state in particular is just so unacceptable that further incentivizing more illegal immigration, which I think this is what would happen to me. I think every Republican, even people who are more moderate on these issues, every Republican in Congress should be a hard no on some sort of grand immigration bargain right now. That's where I come down on this. I mean, look, I mean, I could just hang up the phone right now and say I agree. Let me just add a few more elements just to say, number one, this morning, uh, my um, the entire Texas delegation, virtually the entire Texas delegation got together and we offered uh, our uh, Texas border plan. And it's a framework laying out specifically how you secure the border. We don't touch immigration because we're focused on what Texans want us to focus on, which is securing the border. Yes. You're talking about infrastructure and wall, sure. But you're talking about policy changes that this administration are refusing to accept and acknowledge that they need to have the policies in place to hold the line at the border, turning away and detaining, not encountering and releasing. We talk about interior enforcement and we talk about targeting cartels. In the Senate, what Senator Tillis is doing, with all due respect, is it's ridiculous. I mean, I saw a provision that, oh, we'll take a one-year temporary extension of Title 42 in exchange for, you know, DACA amnesty. I'm going, wait a minute. Hold on. You're negotiating something. Title 42 isn't actually a border security mechanism. It's a pandemic play. Right. What we actually need to do is enforce our border security rules the way they're supposed to be done and actually have sovereignty. So you're exactly right. That's what we need to do. And the last thing I'll say is this. Remember four years ago in 2018 when Republicans were dealing with immigration, they failed on border security. But remember the vote. DACA was included in the bill. Included in the bill for decent security. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't what Chip Roy would write, but it was something. Good lot won. Not one Democrat voted for it. They are intentionally unserious about this, and any deal being struck, with all due respect to Chris and Cinema, in the Senate right now, will not be a good bill. I can I know this issue. It will not be a no, good I, bill. No, I tend to agree. And the bill that you just referenced was during the Trump administration, where President Trump went farther than I expected 
in offering the Democrats some very serious concessions when it comes to, you know, dreamers and DACA and that sort of thing in exchange for actual meaningful border security. And they like out of hand rejected it instantly. They had no interest at all in meaningful security. They wanted the DREAM Act, but not enough to actually say yes to it. They wouldn't take yes for an answer. They, I kind of like, I, I believe they kind of like having that as a live issue to use uh, and and to, you know, pound at for political reasons rather than resolving it. Certainly if the resolution involves meaningful border security, which they're against, I think some of that's just politics. Trump was for it, so they were against it, even if deep down some of them might think it actually is needed and a good idea. But right now, like, in the past, I have understood to reach a bargain, and I'm often someone who's willing to be open to compromise on on a number of things. We just talked about one, the, the, the same-sex marriage bill I thought was a compromise that was pretty fair. You know, the infrastructure bill wasn't perfect, but I could live with it. On this, in theory, you give some and then you get something. Like, that's kind of the way these things go, and... At first glance, that's sort of what the Tilla Cinema compromise could look like. But I guess I'm just at a point, and I was talking about this on the show the other day, Congressman, where just like I have no interest even in enforcement first. Right now, it is enforcement only in my book. Enforcement only. This is a complete disaster at the southern border. It is a humanitarian and national sovereignty and security crisis. It is getting worse. It's going to get even worse when Title 42 goes away. It's so shockingly unacceptable that to be sort of giving them any sort of political goodies in exchange for like this little concession here or there, I think just kind of is missing the gravity of the moment and what is happening on the ground in reality. So I'll just add a couple more points probably in closing. I think you're probably running out of time, but is the remember this in terms of give and take. In 20 before I got to Congress in the summer of 2018 in that deal in which I said uh, that bill uh, had uh, significant support and had DACA in it, uh, all members of the Freedom Caucus except for two voted for that even with DACA in it for better or worse. Like that's the that's the reality of the give and take. Like they often get tarred and feathered, but that was the truth in the give and take. And then secondly, you said this. This is a human issue. Like we deal with this every day. We deal with the dead kids from fentanyl. We deal with the dead migrants. We deal with the 53 migrants who cooked in a tractor trailer in San Antonio. We deal with the ranchers who find dead bodies, the almost 1,000 who have died crossing the Rio Grande. This is not compassion, guy. And look, yeah. you know, we all have our you know, ways of framing all this. This is so bad sitting here as a, you know, a nation that is, that is under God. You know, I, as a Christian, I'm looking at this and going, this is what we. This is the best we got. Like people dying, being used as sex slaves by cartels for profit machines. Like, come on, that's not compassion. And you know, we've got to sit down, get this done. That's why the Texas uh, delegation got together and offered a great plan, the border security plan. I'll make sure your your team gets a copy. Yeah, no, of it. I got great. it here. The Fox News write up. It's called "By Texans for Texas," and is it bipartisan? Did you get Quayar on this thing? No, this was focused as as our effort as the GOP. We'll talk to Henry. Henry, you know, we have to, but Henry's one we can talk to, and right. we'll be talking to some others and some of our other colleagues. We rolled it out as a GOP effort, but we'll be working it. Yeah, right now it has to be enforcement only. That has to be the priority. It's not even an ideological or partisan statement, as far as I'm concerned, based on this crisis that we're covering as closely as we do here. I know a lot of other people don't want to talk about it, don't want to cover it, again, for political reasons, in my view. Uh, lastly, Congressman, I did want to ask you about this because it's related. President Biden went to a neighboring state 
or I, I should say another border state in Arizona this week, and he was asked about whether he was going to go to the border while he was there. He said, no, there were more important things to do. Uh, this, when we're dealing with migrant deaths, suicides of Border Patrol agents, uh, another Border Patrol agent was just killed in an accident in pursuing illegal immigrants in your state just this week. President says there's more important stuff going on. Quickly, your reaction. Well, I'd just like him to have to talk to the family of Raul Gonzalez, the Border Patrol agent you just referenced, and all the other Border Patrol agents who are feeling crapped on by an administration who lied about them, lied about them supposedly whipping people they didn't whip, and they knowingly did it. And then for him to go to Arizona and say there are more important things, that shows you the, the sort of callousness, the total disregard, and a guy who's not gone to the border. Yeah, I think so, callous is the right word, unfortunately. I think it's apt. Congressman Chip Roy, Republican, Texas 21. Congressman, enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Just a quick note. This is a story that has percolated a bit into public eye this week. We've had Senator Ted Cruz on this show multiple times, Republican from Texas. I've had the occasion of meeting his wife, Heidi, who's great at various events. I have not met their daughters, but you may have heard that one of the Cruz's daughters harmed herself this week and is recovering. We don't really have a ton of details. Even if we did, I wouldn't really share them. We talked yesterday with Dr. Drew on this program about depression and isolation and real struggles that a lot of young people in particular are going through in recent years. And obviously this cuts across all demographics. This is not a white, black, Hispanic, Asian issue. This is not a Republican or Democratic issue. This is a societal issue involving collectively the children of America. And a lot of them have been suffering. And so the story got out. People were sharing speculations. Some people were trying to make it political and find a way to criticize Ted Cruz or his political views on things. I think when you find out that someone in public life is having a really difficult time with their family in their private life, especially on something as sensitive as this, the only correct response is to say nothing at all or to just say that you are rooting for them to pull through this, praying for them, hoping that they can find healing and can resolve this and move forward in some sort of productive way. That's it. That is our sentiment here toward the Cruz family, this daughter in particular. It's got to be hard, of course, on the parents. Then there's the glare of the public spotlight. It's just, I can only imagine, extremely difficult and painful. I know that Cruz has canceled a number of events and interviews. He's focused on his kids and his family as he should be. So just our thoughts and our hearts going out to the Cruises this week And I did see a tweet from Megan McCain, my friend who was recently on the show, and she said this, there's a special hell being a teenage girl when your dad is a famous, parentheses, Republican politician, and you're in middle high school. And I did it before social media and before journalists would target minors and report on them. 
leave the entire Cruz family alone and just send prayers. That's what she said. I think that's exactly right. And it's not just Republican political kids. I'm sure this is true for Democratic kids as well. Families get dragged into this stuff sometimes. Some people really don't have any limits for what they're willing to do or say when it comes to the blood sport of politics, which is just not okay. But it's especially not okay involving minors. They have no control over who their parents are or what they do. They're just living their life. They have their problems like the rest of us. And this is a very human thing. So we should have a human response, not a political one, on this. Lots of room for politics in a lot of other realms. Not this. The Guy Benson Show is back after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show, halfway through the program today from New York City. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast, is always free on demand when the show is over. Joining us now is our friend Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show, KTTH, out in Seattle, our affiliate out there. Also, crime correspondent for Tucker Carlson Tonight. And Jason, it's always great to have you here. It is always fun to be here. Happy holidays to you. I want to start with a topic that we covered earlier. I see you've been tweeting about it. It's the deal brokered by the Biden administration to secure the release of this basketball player, Brittany Griner, who had been unjustly confined and detained in Russia in exchange for this warlord terrorist. And as I said before, I'm very happy that she's coming home. I'm thrilled for her and her family. There are questions about someone who wasn't brought home. There are lots of questions about the person that was swapped for her by the Biden team. But one thing that strikes me, and I want to get your reaction to this specifically, I have now seen on social media, Instagram and Twitter and elsewhere, people who are really celebrating this outcome on the political left are leaning hard into the fact that she is a black woman in the LGBT community. Like that is a central part of their celebration, identity politics, given what's at play. I'm happy that she's an American coming home. I have concerns related to the circumstances. I can point out that there's this Marine also unjustly being held there who remains in Russian custody. He's a white man. I don't think that should be relevant. But it's just like so strange to me, not surprising because this is how the identitarians operate, but it is so strange that people would look at this story and immediately go to immutable characteristics as the most important thing for them to highlight in their performative celebrations about the outcome. I just can't really relate to that mindset. I just can't. Well, it's just off-putting, and it puts folks like you and I and so many others in a position to not just celebrate her return and her freedom. I I share your concerns, and it's always been a conflict of mine. I I obviously want an American who's unjustly punished to be free from uh, a a tyrant. At the same time, I also feel deeply uncomfortable about prisoner swaps and and the implications of that. And and I I don't know if I'll ever come to terms with with a place. I'm probably always going to be conflicted about that. But the reaction is just so off-putting, where 
it makes it sound like the only reason that she was released and the only reason why the Biden administration worked for her release is because of all of the the identities that she you know marks off on the progressive intersectionality worksheet. And you've got Van Jones earlier today saying you can't allow a black female icon treated like garbage in America do nothing about it. That just so, so if she wasn't a black female icon, you could allow her to be or like a, like a white male marine. Well, and that's the point. It's just it, it feels like we could all celebrate the release of someone unjustly punished while also understanding that you've got another person who's being victimized, another family that is probably I, I can't even imagine what they're going through right now. And you have Randy Weingarten yep. from the of teachers course. union of putting course. out there. I mean, this is well, she's also not only is she a basketball star, she's also gay, black and a woman. Uh, uh, OK. Okay. So, again, they're telling us that they don't really care about her. They care about her identities. And that's not what we're supposed to be celebrating. This is an American citizen at the end of the day who was not deserving of what she received. We also have another another American citizen who's in that exact same position and has been there much longer. And that story, Paul Whelan's not going to get coverage after today. He just isn't. And that's a shame. I saw another post from someone that I follow on the left who shared a meme about Brittany Griner coming home. And again, I'm thrilled that she's coming. And he wrote that a black queer woman is returning to the U.S., quote, symbols matter. And I guess I understand sometimes the importance of symbolism or representation or visibility But I feel like they're just trying to shoehorn some of their hobby horses into something where it really ought to be completely irrelevant because it makes it seem like they wouldn't really care if an American were being released from Russian custody if that person didn't check certain identity boxes. Or maybe they wouldn't have pushed the Biden administration to do this. And maybe, honestly, they wouldn't have prioritized this type of deal if she didn't fulfill some of those categories, which to me is just a very creepy and bizarre thing. Yeah, but you you know they wouldn't have. You you know that because we can see how they're treating Paul Whelan. You, you know that they would not have done that. And, and here's the, the, the funny part about all of this and the sad part about this is tomorrow, once this story fades away, they'll go back to telling us that this country is irredeemably racist and sexist. It's institutionalized white supremacy all over the place. They'll just go back to that tired talking point because that's all they have. They have a whole bunch of bumper sticker talking points that denigrate this country, that denigrate anybody who disagrees with them, and they're just going to lean back on that. And that's the sad and ironic part about this entire story. Let's shift to your neck of the woods. You cover some of the absolute insanity in the Pacific Northwest all the time on your show, in your writing, on your social feeds. I saw some video that you posted of a restaurant in Seattle, I guess it's a place that people really like, and they were burglarized, they were robbed, and that might not be a huge surprise, sort of dog bites man, except how many times has this been now? 
15 times that the restaurant has been broken into since the pandemic started. And that's how he frames it. I frame it more since the introduction of the light on crime laws and policies that have hit Seattle and the state. Because he told me in an interview a couple of days ago, they, they've been around for over 30 years. And he said, the first 29 years of business, we suffered maybe five break-ins. The last two and a half years, 18. And that tells you something about the state of Seattle and the state of Washington. And it's so very clear. And what, of course, is so tragic about this is not just as a small business struggling to survive. I mean, this is a restaurant. It's not like they're, they're rolling in cash at the end of the day. It's, it's uh, not that kind of business. Most restaurants aren't. But just about a week and a half ago, the Seattle City Council just permanently defunded 80 police positions in a department that's already short about 500 to 600 officers. And they're complaining that folks are calling it defunding. And I don't know what else we would call it. <laughs> like, I, I, honestly, I don't know what else you call this... permanently cutting 80 positions in a department that they desperately need more cops. No, it's defunding. It's defunding. They're proud of it. They've been insisting that it needed to happen for purposes of justice and equity for years. They've now done it. The results are speaking for themselves. They don't want people like you to just use accurate terms. In fact, their own terms to describe the literal thing that they're doing. And on top of all of it, this is what would probably make me finally lose my sanity if I were you, is basically Washingtonians, Washingtonians in your state, they look around and they say, eh, all right, yeah, let's just keep doing this. For the most part, they just keep voting for this. They really do. And it is it is frustrating, the loss of sanity ship that sailed a very, very, very long time. <laughs> You're gone. So there, there's not really much more <laughs> that could happen for that to, to, to make my head explode anymore. But 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 you're right. I mean, at, at some point and I've, I've come to terms with this. This is what the people of Seattle and Washington want. And that doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to push back against it, because I do think that we can eventually win these people over. But I've I believe now for a while, especially when it comes to public safety issues, and this is a sad commentary, but unless someone is personally hurt, for for lack of a better term, not always physically, but personally impacted, right. either themselves or their family members or someone they know by the crisis, they're just not going to see things the, the way that they well, are. Well, the, the good and bad news is that officials in Washington and Seattle are working very hard to make sure that more and more people are personally impacted by this. So the number of voters who will be in that category is only going to go up. The question is, will people be moving out of the state at a faster clip, leaving the dead enders behind? I don't know. But you're fighting the good fight out there, and you're trying to persuade people. Some people are persuadable. Some people just aren't. For example, you shared this story, and on some level I find it funny. On some level I find it tragic. These single dudes in Seattle trying to signal their hardcore support for abortion are going out and announcing that they have gotten vasectomies as some act of solidarity, which I don't fully understand, where they're basically telling women, hey, don't worry, I will never impregnate you, and I don't want to. I don't really want to be with you or marry you or have kids with you, but isn't this great? Aren't I progressive? Let's go hook up. That's the message that they're sending. It seems extremely bizarre and short-sighted to me in a lot of ways, not the least of which is the fact that Washington is such a blue state that 
the Dobbs decision does not impact abortion in that state at all. Not even a little bit. It's it's just sad. And I mean, you know, we're talking about lonely, permanently friend zone men who are doing this. Like they think that maybe this will get someone to swipe right on their profile on, on, on Tinder. But of course, it's not. These are people who so desperately want to be seen as supporting women because it earns them some social currency when it really doesn't do a thing. There is zero threat to abortion access in Washington. Washington state. It is now in the city of Seattle, a protected class, along with someone's gender, with someone's religion or sexual orientation, getting an abortion or having gone an abort, gotten an abortion. That's a protected class in Seattle. It is easier to get an abortion here than a good cup of coffee. That's the sad Ugh. reality. And so you've got these men who so desperately want to be loved by women. And this this ain't it. This ain't it, folks. And by the way, we've seen a 34% increase in men getting vasectomies, according to Planned Parenthood Northwest. That's not just Washington, by the way. That's Pacific Northwest, including Indiana and Kentucky. Oddly enough, I don't know why that's included in that. But hmm. these people are acknowledging it. This is not me looking at the data and saying, well, this is what it must be. No, they're coming out and they're talking about it. They're saying, I'm just trying to be a good ally. But you're not. You're no. just a sad, pathetic little man. No, it's performative, to use that word again, and in many cases, I would say. And the other thing is, Jason, you know, on one hand, I want to say, quite frankly, I'm perfectly fine with these people not procreating or trying to raise kids. And I prefer this to abortion, certainly. However, it's just sort of sad, and it just sort of hurts my heart a little bit to imagine a situation where one of these guys in his 20s or 30s is out there, you know, being what he thinks is a good ally and progressive, does the thing, snip, snip. And then five years down the line, let's say, he meets the love of his life. He falls in love with someone. He wants to have a family. And now that's going to be a very complicated situation for him and his wife or his partner. And they have to start exploring various options and stuff. That scenario, again, is something they have imposed upon themselves, so I'm not, like, overly grieving about it, but it's just still, like, kind of a sad thing to me. It is. I'll I'll cheer you up a little bit. They're never going to find a spouse. Oh, well, what a lovely thought. They're going to be stuck on Bumble their entire lives, so so don't feel too bad. Uh, but again, yeah, a part of me agrees with you, too. It's just like, yeah, and look, if you choose to get a vasectomy for legitimate reasons, more power to you. I think that that's a responsible thing to do if you don't want to get someone pregnant, and it is certainly preferable to getting an abortion. But the reason why they're doing it, it, it truly does make me sad. I, I like to make fun of these people, and I think they're deserving of it. But I do legitimately feel bad for some of these yeah, no, no, a lot of what you cover is dark comedy. I mean, that's just what it is in reality. And you cover it relentlessly out there, indefatigable. Our friend Jason Rance hosted the Jason Rance Show on our great affiliate in Seattle, KTTH 770 AM 945 FM in Seattle, Tacoma. Jason, happy holidays to you. Thanks for dropping by. We'll talk soon. Merry Christmas. Thank you. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. All right, so yesterday we were talking about, and we played some sound, of our friend Greg Gutfeld on his show two nights ago, 
complaining to two million people <laughs> that he wasn't invited to my Christmas party. He wanted to rub elbows with producer Christine. I get it. He wasn't invited. For various reasons, not personal to him, we're just like not close friends, even though we get along very well here at Fox. So he mentioned this several times on his show that he wasn't invited. So as it happens, I was one of the guests last night on his panel, and right out of the gate, he came to me on some other topic, and I decided we needed to clear the air. We addressed what happened. Cut 25. You know, uh, I miss your beard. I'm sorry, you can't decide which you prefer. You know what, I I have... (laughs) I have so many insights on this topic, but first, Greg, I was watching your show last night, as a matter of fact. Yes. And I have to clear the air on something. Okay. You, in front of millions of people, complained repeatedly yes. that you were not invited to my Christmas party. <laughs> and in fairness, it is fabulous and great, and it's true you were not invited. <laughs> but, but, this is why I debated it, and I said, this is not the type of party that he's usually asking me to invite him to. <laughs> For example, the last time I invited him to a Christmas party, I had to turn him away at the door. You remember why? I said, this is not what we mean when we say, Don, we now are gay apparel, Greg. (laughs) It's not appropriate. So obviously I had that ready to go. And then it continued. Cat Timp started jumping in. You can hear Dana in the background affirming Cat's point as well in Cut 26. Next year, you will be invited. I, I, I'll probably be busy. No, I you hope. won't go. No, that's the thing. You he probably won't go. He would never go. Greg, okay, I've known you, what, almost a decade? How many of my birthday parties have you been to? It's, easy, it's an easy number to remember because it's zero. <laughs> <laughs> you just invite He would. You, you just invite him. It's not like he'll go either way. Right. Yeah, you just cover yeah. that base. Uh, was you, called you, you, Gus. Want, you want the invite... Yes. To then decline. Yes, yes. exactly. Okay. And, I also and my wanna... next intro on the show will be like, he invited me to a stupid party and I said no. Exactly. How dare you deprive me of that? <laughs> okay, fair right. enough. Do you have a point to make? No. Or... All right, that's cool because, I mean, I... we burned up some minutes here. <laughs> I'll drop the party. I'll drop the Christmas party. Except I wouldn't. Because, and this became just a running theme, I decide to try to work in the Christmas party as a gag under every other topic over the course of the show. And I have to say that I do appreciate Kat coming to my defense on this and Dana, who also knows Greg very well, being like, there's no way he shows up. He admits he wants the invite to then say no. And he is now invited next year. But did I drop it? As I said, not really. Here's a little taste of the rest of the show, Cut 31. I will not divulge the identity of that friend, but I will tell you, she was at the Christmas party. (laughs) (laughs) I will say I don't really know much about this because I'm six feet tall, but uh, for others, Mm -hmm. I think it would be unfair to be judged based solely on your height. And in a show of good faith, I will have the bouncer get rid of the height restriction (laughs) at next year's Christmas party. (laughs) Unlike the choices that I made, at my Christmas party last weekend with Kat. Very fun experience last night on the show as usual. Always great to be on Gutfeld! Exclamation point. Looking forward to next time. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. Stay with us. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
happy hour on this Thursday on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson, Fox News contributor. I'll be on with Kennedy, my friend tonight, FBN, 7 p.m. Eastern hour. Hope to see you there on TV. Our website on the radio show, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every single day on demand. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. This hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Fantastic, delicious, refreshing, alcoholic. So 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you. Find it in your neck of the woods as they expand. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox News. Also anchor of Fox News Sunday. Check your local listings. She's got a hit podcast, Live in the Bream. She's a best-selling author of multiple books about women, including daughters and mothers in the Bible. All sorts of things going on with our friend Shannon Bream. Welcome back. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Guy. It's so great to be with you. Great to have you here. I want to walk through the Supreme Court cases that are on deck. Some of them we've just seen go through oral arguments, or in most cases we've heard go through oral arguments with the release of some of that audio. I know that we're still waiting on a couple big ones. Before we get to same-sex marriage and religious liberty, I want to check in on this role of state courts in election laws case that has made it to the federal Supreme Court. What's at stake there? So can state legislatures control the processes that they use to have federal elections? Just a real-world example to help people understand this. In New York this year, the democratically controlled state legislature there came back with some maps because they draw the maps for the House districts and where you'll vote. And the state courts that reviewed them was like, no way. These are so partisan and gerrymandered in such a way. Like, we, they, we can't accept these as legitimate. Sent them back. They came back again, still weren't happy about where the maps were being drawn. The state court said, all right, we're going to have a special master draw these districts. The special master did that. It actually worked out really well for Republicans for a number of reasons. They were able to flip a number of House seats there in New York. But the question is, did the state courts have the right to tell the legislatures what they can do? It's this whole concept of the independent state legislature theory. It's a little wonky, but can state courts, at the end of the day, the question is, tell state legislatures, you don't get to decide, we can stop you. And I've seen some of the people following the case saying, democracy itself is at stake. And of course, some people say that constantly about everything these days. But there are some interesting balance of power questions here. And I know at least some of the commentary about this and questioning about this was some of these judges and Supreme Court justices at the state level are themselves elected by voters. So they're not exactly politicians, but they get elected the same way as politicians do. That's another sort of interesting wrinkle in some of this. Yeah, and Justice Alito is one of those who brought that up. And so the question is, when the founders and the framers put together this power in the Constitution that said state legislatures, that's the word they used, would be the ones to set federal election policy, did they mean that more broadly? Could that include state courts? Could it include governors? Like, where do you draw that line? So, you know, that's the nuance of what they were trying to find. I don't think you're going to have a lot of enough of uh, of a majority there on the court and the Supreme Court that's going to go along with this and say, yes, the independent state legislatures, they can do whatever they want. Um, But there's also some pushback to, you know, how do you say that the state court then is equal to or more powerful than the state legislatures based on the 
the language of the Constitution. So they're digging into the history and the practice over the years and what it means. There are other stops on states. You know, there are federal laws. There's the Voting Rights Act. There are other things that can be used to control state legislatures that do something that's clearly unconstitutional or egregious. But the question is, can those state courts step in for those very specific state-related questions? There's a big affirmative action case that people have been anticipating now for months. What's the status there? And just remind us what the broad strokes are, if you would. So we wait now. This higher education case, it was brought by a group of primarily Asian American students who say that the way that preferences have been set up benefit um, black applicants and Latino applicants to the detriment of Asian Americans who say, um, you know, even if we have better test scores and better resumes, we are disregarded as not quote, truly being a minority, a lot of places they say they're classified as white, so that doesn't give them the same preference point or attempt to use um, their background as one of the compelling parts of making their case for application. So it involves Harvard and UNC, and they've heard the case, and so now we just wait. Okay, and last but not least, for the purposes of today's conversation, there is this First Amendment, free exercise, conscience rights question colliding with LGBT rights and same-sex marriage. This particular case is involving a website designer, but it's kind of similar in a lot of ways to the florist cases, the baker cases, this general idea of should, in a country where same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, should small businesses run by people who don't believe in same-sex marriage be compelled to provide goods and services for those ceremonies and those celebrations. And Shannon, just so you know, and just so the audience is refreshed, my position on this is I'm in favor of same-sex marriage. In fact, I'm so in favor of it that I'm in one, literally. I'm for it. And I'm glad that that's the law of the land. I'm also in favor of protecting First Amendment rights and religious liberties. And while I don't believe that businesses should be able to, as a matter of course, discriminate against people based on various characteristics just for goods and services in general, for the specific narrow area of the codification of these types of unions, I don't think that a pluralistic society should coerce and mandate people engage in their personal goods and services or their own speech and expression in that context. I feel like that is an exception, an opt-out, some sort of accommodation should be made in this area. And I don't know if there's a way for the justices to balance this stuff elegantly, if it's even their role to effectively, I don't want to call it legislate, but really get into some of the specifics. I am broadly, and I'm just sort of, again, stating my case here, glad to hear the conservative justices overwhelmingly, at least in oral arguments, sounding like they are going to strike another blow for religious liberty. I'm in favor of that. But Some of the questions coming from the liberal justices on limiting principles and why this type of thing wouldn't necessarily apply to other examples, I think those are fair considerations, tricky ones, but important ones to consider and raise. That's where I come at this from, Shannon, and I'm wondering what your analysis is based on the oral argument and what you make of some of those thorny balancing act questions that I just laid out. Yeah, and I think it's so good that you set that backdrop because there's a lot of nuance to this. It is not as if a business owner says, I will not serve black or same-sex customers or whoever. It is this very specific situation of using your artistic 
skills, they argue, for a very specific thing, which is a same-sex wedding ceremony. This web designer says she has many LGBTQ clients. They have good relationships. He's more than happy to serve them. And it got kind of to this point where the questioning that Justice Gorsuch really pressed in on was, uh, and Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett also said, um, if you were asked to do something that didn't agree with um, your personal convictions, this web designer says she won't do anything that depicts violence. She won't do any number of things. Um, And the question came from Justice Barrett, would you, you know, when the part of the wedding website where it says, here's our story, here's how we met. If somebody came to you and said, I want you to do our wedding, we met, we were both married, we were having affairs, we decided to throw caution to the wind, we fell in love, you know, and her attorney representing her said, no, that's exactly, she wouldn't do it. It doesn't matter if it's a heterosexual couple or same-sex couple. Mm-hmm. And Justice Gorsuch got to this question. He said, so you're saying it's a, not about the who. You will serve anyone. It's about the what. You don't want to be forced to, under the free speech clause of the First Amendment, express a message that you do not agree with. And that's what the case comes down to. Yeah, I mean, that feels like a pretty clear-cut one to me. It gets a little less clear-cut when some of the other justices are wondering, okay, if there's some sort of carve-out, and I don't know how exactly you would frame that in a constitutional framework in a judicial ruling, for example, but perhaps they, they could do it in a way that makes sense, why wouldn't that apply to other provision of goods and services in general, as opposed to just related to a same-sex wedding or some other sort of wedding ceremony, that's where the the limits of this or the limiting principles get a little bit stickier. I'm not quite sure how the court is going to handle that. I do hope they can sort of settle this issue somewhat decisively because I would like to have a stable situation in this country where LGBT people have their rights and they don't have to be worried, our rights, we don't have to be worried about the court coming in and swooping in and, and up rooting the whole thing or overturning the apple cart, but also people who dissent in good faith aren't dragged along and forced to do things. I think that we can have a balance in this country, live and let live, flowing both ways. I'm just not sure the perfect way of landing there. But you mentioned Justice Gorsuch. There was a pretty prominent exchange with one of the attorneys representing the state of Colorado in this case, who was talking about the concept of re-education. And I think he kind of made a pretty powerful point there, Shannon. He did. And listen, he's based in Colorado. He was a federal judge out of that area as well. And he said, Colorado is trying to have it both ways on some of this stuff. He said, you know, the decision there basically was that this um, this cake maker in the earlier case, he could not be forced to make a cake with an anti-LGBTQ message. But essentially what the state law was saying is that he could be forced to make one with a pro-LGBTQ message. So where is the, you know, dispassionate fairness in making that decision? And he said, Jack Phillips, who was at Baker, was was essentially sent into re-education. Um, the attorney arguing for Colorado said, no, it wasn't re-education. And they went back and forth. They said, what was it? Well, we were making sure that he was educated on how the Colorado law works and his need to comply with it. Uh-huh. Justice Nina Gorsuch fired back, there are people who would call that re-education. Yes, you could be forgiven so for calling that re-education because, I mean, that's exactly what it smacks of. And the attorney came back, the advocate, and said, well, I strongly disagree. I think Gorsuch made that point. So we'll see where that one goes. I think one of the biggest cases outstanding this session, probably affirmative action in this one, the top two most watched cases, at least on big sort of hot button issues. And I am genuinely fascinated to see how this court adjudicates that question, the one that we were just talking about. And correct me if I'm wrong, Shannon, we'll probably find out in June. 
I think so. That's when the term ends, and that's usually when we get the most tricky, thorny, um, landmark-type cases. So June, I would I would bet money on it. Very quickly, Fox News Sunday this weekend, you at the helm as usual. What do we have in store so far? Well, listen, with the breaking news of Brittany Griner's release, um, we had already booked Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State. So we were going to talk foreign policy oh. with him. That will certainly be top of yeah, mind. Perfect. And we've been in conversations with the White House about we want to hear from them, too, about how this came together. But we're doing a deep dive into the Idaho case and the, um, the murders there of those college students. We've got some really interesting stuff our reporters have dug up, and we've got an FBI agent, a detective with us as well to kind of walk us through that. And the one and only Brian Kilmeade, he's going to be with us, too. Oh, Excellent. Plus the political panel. That's all coming up. Check your local listings on Sunday morning. Fox News Sunday anchored by our friend Shannon Bream here on The Guy Benson Show. Merry Christmas to you. Talk again soon, Shannon. See you then, Guy. Thank you. The Guy Benson Show happy hour rolling on right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It is our happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from the Big Apple. Glad to have you all along. So I love this story very much that I'm about to share with you. You've seen this pattern, I was going to say in recent months, but it's really been recent years where climate activists, like the hardcore ones, are out there trying to disrupt people's lives and ruin things that they enjoy to draw attention to their cause. It is such a counterproductive approach to basically life and activism, but they can't help themselves and they're all caught up in their own self-righteousness and they all live in this bubble and don't realize how much other people really hate them. Like chaining yourself to other people and blocking a highway so people can't get to work or emergency vehicles can't pass, that is one way to deeply alienate others. Some of the feel-good videos that you see out of this stuff is when average people, because often officials in these cities just don't know what to do. They don't want to touch these people. Sometimes you've got left-wing pieties colliding, and so the local government doesn't want to necessarily tick off the social justice warriors who support the eco-warriors. It's just a whole interesting ecosystem of left-wingery. But sometimes you have just average citizens get out of their cars and physically drag these people away and, like, throw them to the side of the road, get back in their car and drive. It is just such an insult to working people and just folks who don't have time for these games. They have lives to lead. No matter how deeply you believe in a cause, you can turn people off, and it's like a certain element of the eco-green left-wingers are experts at doing exactly that, alienating people. The more recent trend is going and throwing paint or food on priceless works of art, because obviously, why not? Well, the planet's dying, so here's some soup on a Picasso. Oh, makes perfect sense. You'd love to sometimes maybe have an insight into what goes into someone's brain to come up with that idea and then say, yes, that will make our point well. Although maybe it's best to not get inside those brains, because it might just be... A bit of a rabbit hole. So here's the latest example of this kind of disruption, or at least attempted disruption, backfiring. And I enjoy this maybe too much. And I saw this. It was sent to me by Darren Grimes, who's a UK political commentator. The story comes from Germany. Happened a couple weeks ago in Hamburg, where two climate activists wearing these orange-like 
construction worker vests storm the stage during a classical music concert, like at the Philharmonic in Hamburg. They are performing Beethoven, his violin concerto in Hamburg, and they went up on stage to carry on and yell and scream about the planet, and they glued themselves. This is another thing that they're doing, where they take super, super powerful glue and glue themselves to walls or floors or streets and any other number of objects. These two, this crack duo of savvy activists, a tall, lanky man with a terrible haircut, and a woman, I I won't talk about her physical appearance, but they glued themselves to the conductor's stand in this concert hall. There's this metal railing, and they glued their hands to the stand and shouted and chanted and did what they did to booze from the audience. I would guarantee you the type of crowd at this sort of event, probably not majority right-wing if I had to guess, and yet it's still so annoying and disrespectful and pointless that the crowd was booing them. They don't care. They love this. Like, they're going to get all these accolades, they think, for their brave stand or whatever. What they didn't know is that the conductor stand is portable. It's not built into the stage. So security marched right up there with them, just picked the whole thing up and took them away and put them in some distant hallway where they were still glued to that stand looking absolutely bewildered in the photograph where they are not going to be stuck to that thing, but they are nowhere near anyone. They're out in the bowels of this place somewhere where they can't be seen or heard. So slow clap, guys. I know you can't slow clap because your hands are glued, but I will slow clap for you for this tremendous effort. It's just fun. Just blowing up in their faces, and the concert went on. Good. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour on that happy note continues after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we caught up with Morgan Ortegas, former spokeswoman at the State Department under Secretary Pompeo, reacting to some of the big news today about Brittany Griner. Here's a taste of that conversation with Morgan Ortegas. I just want to get your big picture thoughts on this before we delve into some of the details, because I saw you put out a very thoughtful Twitter thread about it. How do you react to the news today? Well, first of all, you just hit the nail on the head. It was the Russians who put up the choice of one or none. And why are we letting the Russians dictate the terms? Uh, that's, um, you, you know, that, that, that in and of space, I, I've been on a flight to L.A., and so I, I actually missed the press conference. I was just hearing it live with your listeners for the first time. And you would, if you were here, you would see me shaking my head on the, on the bus to the rental cars. Um, because the premise is just flawed to begin with to say it was one or none. Well, that's because you let you let the Russians uh, control the terms, right. the terms. Uh, listen, in the Trump administration, uh, when Robert Orion, before he became national security advisor, his job at the State Department was to negotiate the release of our hostages around the world. President Trump got more hostages out 
than any uh, president in modern history, maybe ever. I'll have to double check that. I texted Robert O'Brien right before I came on the show with you. I will double check that statistic for your listeners, Guy. Um, but, uh, but definitely in modern history, maybe ever. So how did Robert, and if you talk to Robert O'Brien about this, how did Robert get those hostages out from around the world? Well, he negotiated from a position of strength. You don't negotiate where you let uh, the enemy or let the opposition party uh, dictate the terms of who will be released. And I think that that problem, to me, what, what Secretary Blinken just said right there is indicative, Guy, of how they approach every negotiation. And it is no surprise to me that the JCPOA, uh, their desire to return and get back in it has failed, uh, because if that's how they approach negotiations with the Russians, and that's how they're approaching with the Iranians and whomever else comes to the table. I mean, that was one of my questions I wanted to ask you. The approach that Robert O'Brien and the Trump administration had was extremely successful without necessarily just succumbing to the demands of the hostile power that's clearly in the wrong. Like, this is not a fair trade in any way, shape, or form. The Russians are bad. The regime is evil. They take people effectively hostage and imprison them as bargaining chips. And as I said in the last segment, they got themselves a whale of a bargain. Horrible for America— and for the Whelan family and others, uh, but great for the Russians, because let's just focus for the moment, Morgan, on who the Americans, who the Biden administration have released in this swap. They got a basketball, a female basketball player who allegedly had weed in her possession. That's who they had and gave up in exchange for, I told the audience, someone whose nickname is the Merchant of Death, Tell us more about this guy. Well, I, I just want to say that I'm I'm always happy when we get an American home. I really am. And of course. There were people that we negotiated to, to get out the hostages, to people who did not have the most pristine records, right, by, by any means. Um, and, and so the issue with me is not being very happy for her and her family that we were able to get her home. That's Correct. great. But the issue is, again, is, is letting the Russians set the term of the release and not being able to get Paul Whalen out. And by the way, uh, when we talk about Paul Whale and, of course, the Marine who was there, who was not let out, who's been held captive for, for longer, uh, who has not uh, pled guilty to any charges, we have now just upped the ante. By allowing this to happen, we have showed our cards to the Russians, guy, and we've showed the, the Russians that Paul is the most valuable hostage or, or you know, wrongfully detained person that the Russians have. And so by showing them that, it's going to make it even harder to ever get them out because uh, they set a price, they set a bounty, and it, and, and it was in exchange for Victor Bout, right? And, and even Victor Bout wasn't enough. His release was not enough to get um, Paul Whalen out. And by the way, I must say, it's another important point. Not only did, we, did Robert O'Brien and Brian Hook and the team get more hostages out than any other president in modern history, we did it without doing these trades and without doing these swaps. We didn't pay anybody. Um, we simply stood up strong for the United States of America. So, um, so we know. Listen, Victor Bao is is a is a bad guy. He was convicted for um, conspiring to kill American citizens, officers, employees. 
Um, he is a, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's most similar, this trade, and we can get into this, is most similar to what Joe Biden and President Barack Obama did um, during, uh, I think it was the second term of Obama, uh, Obama the Bergdahl case. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this this guy is like, this guy is a total arms dealing uh, thug. I mean, there's, there's nothing good about this guy. And um, Brittany, I think, did plead guilty to having pot or weed on her. Uh, clearly, much less offensive of a crime than trying to kill Americans and being an inter international arms trafficker. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's like a totally non-balanced. It's not a spy for a spy or something like that. You sometimes see the prisoner swaps. My full interview with Morgan Ortegas, former State Department spokesperson, available at our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the podcast is free every day, the entire show. From beginning to end, no charge to you. That's on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, tips to avoid tipsy texting. That's one of our topics, highly relevant to at least one member of our team here at the show. We'll get to that right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Friday Eve edition from New York City. Yesterday really felt like Thursday to me all day. Now, today is Thursday. But tomorrow's Friday. That's the good news. GuyBensonShow.com, our website every day. Podcast always free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm on the panel tonight with Kennedy on her program, Fox Business Network, in the 7 p.m. hour. I'll be on, I think, in multiple segments. And I just got a little text message invite. I'll be going back to her apartment afterwards for a little bite of dinner, a little tipple, and I will help her and her family decorate their Christmas tree. Isn't that a delight? I can't wait. But first, we have to talk about a few things here, including this story. A French court, they could never get anything wrong, could they, a French court? They've determined that companies cannot fire employees for not being fun or for skipping social gatherings. Because, you know, there's just like that person sometimes who's just a wet blanket and doesn't really want to be part of the team when it comes to group bonding and building experiences. I guess in the past, people were like, you know, let's just cut that person loose. We want a cohesive team that enjoys fun. But that's now illegal in France. So I do recommend that Dan maybe move to France because... Wow. Because he can't get fired for not showing up to fun stuff. <laughs> as was the case at our Christmas party. Which I accept it. I accept it. Now beaten that down into the dirt, that whole topic. Except he was a yes and then a no. And I did hear that there's the Fox News broader Christmas party next week here in New York that I won't be here for because I'll be down in D.C. And Dan was talking about how he will be there. And I'm just saying, don't count on it. If you're banking on Dan being at this party wow. and your enjoyment of the party is going to be wrapped up in his presence, just brace for potential disappointment. Well, they offer bowling at this one. So, I, you know, I mean. Yeah, we, I we offer true crime. <laughs> this is true. I did miss out on all of that, which I'm very sad about. And I'm not a suspect, which is great. You are not. That is the one plus. There is no question that you didn't do it. We're talking about the spill. If you missed it, listen to the previous episodes of the home stretch this whole week on the free podcast. Christine is also 
asking as an inquiring mind, is there a law in France or elsewhere that prevents companies from firing employees who are too, quote unquote, fun? This was your top concern. Yes, uh, obviously. Weren't you supposed to be chief fun officer? Isn't that a topic that we had discussed earlier and we had suggested you could become chief fun officer? You don't remember what happened when we brought that? I brought that up all the way to the top of radio here. Yeah, you went to like our boss's boss's boss. Yeah, walked right into his office. Yeah, and said, hey, I want to be this. And I think he laughed you out of the office. Yeah, For some reason, when he sees me, he just starts laughing. Yeah, he bursts into laughter at the like, side of you. all the time. But that kind of makes your point about how fun you are. You bring laughter and joy to many. Uh, some may say I'm a blessing. Many people are saying. Well, one person in particular apparently is saying. I don't even know if my mother has ever said that to me, that I'm a blessing to her. Oh, I'd be surprised if she had. Maybe that's why you're so excited about this new friendship, because you're getting affirmation that you never got from your host or from your mother. Have you been talking to Roy? My dog? My therapist. Oh, are you still with him? I thought that was over. <laughs> I yeah. thought we I thought we discussed the At breakup. The end of the are, year. are you back together? Oh. So you it's like, oh, this is a long drawn out breakup. It's the long goodbye. You know the end is near, but you keep going to him. I mean, the man I don't want to impugn his professional credentials, but like how good could he really be? Like is he getting is he getting any outcomes here? Like have you improved? Yes, really dramatically. Screaming up and down the street about a stolen purse that wasn't stolen. In fact, what photo did you send me just before the show? A photograph of you and one of my dearest friends. In fact, my dearest friend, Mary Catherine Ham. At first you thought it was an exculpatory photo. Then you realized it wasn't. So, uh, and I have to thank YY for holding this photo because he was the one that had it and just sent it to me today. So I oh, it was really like strategically I deployed. appreciate that yeah. during my trial. He did not bring this, this evidence. This could have been some intriguing evidence, honestly. Oh, my gosh. But um, I am holding a glass of white wine. You're with Mary Catherine Ham. Yes. Yep. And, I'm, and I'm holding a glass of white wine, and I'm thinking in my head when I first see the picture, oh, hello, here we go. White wine. Yeah. But the problem is, in the right hand, <laughs> I have a glass of red wine. Mm, mm-hmm. So not only do I have red wine in my hand, but I have... Two glasses of wine. Yeah, you're double fisting, mm-hmm. and your secondary glass is red, the yeah. one that perhaps you're being more careless with. Totally. I'm. Yes. We might have to reopen this investigation. That maybe the timeline. Can we really confirm that the spill happened after eleven thirty-six p.m.? I don't know. This is just more circumstantial evidence, Your Honor. We might seek an appeal at some point here. We'll we'll sit on that for a moment. Meanwhile. We were teasing before the break. Wall Street Journal story. Smartphone tips to avoid tipsy texting and posting over the holidays. Some people might know what we're talking about here. You've had a few drinks, as is very typical in December in particular. And you feel like you want to reach out to someone because you suddenly have this rush of emotion one way or another. Or you see something on social media and you want to have your say. But your blood alcohol content is maybe a little bit high for responsibly engaging in either of these actions. They're giving you tips to maybe shut your capability off at a certain time if you know that you're drinking. There's ways to avoid this. 
And I felt like this story was in some ways laser focused on a member of our team. And I wanted to make sure that that member of the team read the story start to finish. Dan, tell us about your history on this. So I, let me preface this by saying this is not me anymore. Okay. I'm in a happy relationship. Okay. But in my 20s, I was notorious for, especially around the holiday times, if I'm drinking, I do get emotional anyways. Mm. So around the holiday times, I was notorious for maybe texting an ex at a, after maybe 11 p.m. Ah. Saying no, nothing bad, just being like, Sentimental. Hey, like, hey, yeah, hey, how are you? How's thinking life? Thinking of you. Happy holidays exactly. to you. And just... Getting no response, obviously. Yep. Waking up to a response in the morning when I'm hungover and anxious, being like, please don't contact me. And that's the way wow. worse. Wow. Uh, that is. Okay. Yeah. So you've taken these tips to heart, it sounds yes, like. Yes, absolutely. That's I, good. I wish I had this back then, is what I'm saying. Good point. No, I think that's a good point. I almost never do anything like this if I've had a few drinks. If I'm going to tweet, because people really get in trouble when they drink and tweet. Woo. I am, like, paranoid. If I know that I've had a few drinks, I am scrupulously editing those later night tweets. I probably should avoid them, but I make sure, like, I'm so paranoid about it. I go back. Before I send it, I'm like, let me save it in drafts. That's how I deal. And then there's Christine. And Christine points out she's not a tipsy texter. She's a drunken dialer. Can you compose yourself and respond? I'm not liking you a lot today. You know that, right? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. But, I, well, to be fair, in my early 20s, texting really wasn't that big of a thing. Oh, they didn't have texts. They, no. They right, in your early 20s, it was like Telegram, right? So that takes, that's a much more involved process. And in my early 20s, we didn't have social media. I'm serious. I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. We didn't have... No, think about it. I was 21 in 2001. Okay. So there was no Facebook. Yeah, that checks out. I got Facebook in 2003. It came, Northwestern was like one of the first 20 schools or something that got Facebook, and it was something never heard of, and then everyone had it in the span of like a week. Yeah. And that was my freshman year. I didn't get Facebook until like probably 2010 or something like that. Maybe I had a MySpace, but. Are you active on Facebook? Yes. Okay. That's what most boomers are. Okay. So let's talk about this. With the the drunk dialing, you admit to this. Mm -hmm. Like if it's, let's say, 11 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and I see Christine the Sanctus in someone else's phone is Christine Benson. (laughs) The phone's ringing. Someone's calling. And I say, okay, it's Christine. Either there's some sort of crisis in her life or the show, mm-hmm. or more likely, she just wants to talk, and you get very chatty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I feel like maybe should the plan for me, should the default setting be, if the phone is ringing after a certain time and it's you, should I text you to make sure everything, like not answer the call, text you to make sure everything's okay and if you're like, no, call me, then I'm like, uh-oh, then I call you. Or if you're like, yes, call me back, then I know that I can avoid the whole situation. Yeah, totally. You can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to be fair, I, I no longer drink during the week. So um, I, I've It's thought- usually a weekend. Yeah. Well, I don't really call you on the week- weekends. Well, unless. Yeah. And unless then I'll be this. like, guy, you know what we 
should do about the show. Oh, you have so many thoughts about the show and just like life in general. (laughs) You know who I feel like bears the brunt of this? Let's bring in Quiet Wyatt. Oh, oh, yes. Wyatt, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you must be on speed dial for Christine. How often does Christine call you? Well, I mean, we talk every day, but if you're talking about those kinds of calls. <laughs> yes, I do get a, quite a few of those. Uh-huh. And is that do you answer them or do you just sort of pretend like you're away from your phone or be on quote unquote airplane mode, take a page out of Christine's book? I'm not going to lie, you're going to really enjoy this one is once she called me and I did answer, but I was actually in the middle of reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> it's and like every so stereotype I, is coming true. So I put my phone on speaker and I just continued reading and listening at the same time. So I did a little bit of multitasking. Okay. Um, you were it, reading and just like occasionally you would unmute and say, uh-huh, okay, and she would keep going. That's actually pretty smart. We got to run. We're out of time. This is a fun home stretch. Tipsy texting. Oh, boy. Back here, same time, same place tomorrow from New York City. It's The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.